Uh, Troy asked that I'd take just a moment to uh, introduce myself, uh, share a little bit about our, uh, our ministry. And so I want to do that uh, before we read God's word uh, and take a look at it. So my name is Michael Whittem. Um, my wife is Anna, and we have two uh, little girls, four and seven, Eleanor and Francis. Uh, and we have been uh, in the Boston area for about three years now. And I work for a ministry called RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, if you're not familiar with this ministry, it is uh, the campus ministry of the denomination that this church and other churches in the area are connected to. So it is our, it's our denominational ministry for the PCA. And uh, it, we've been a ministry now for about 50 years out of a deep commitment to love and care for our children. If we're going to be a, a uh, you know, a crib to cradle or whatever, uh, cradle to grave, thank you, uh, ministry, uh, uh, the church, then we need to uh, care for our covenant children uh, as they go through their college years. We know that that's a very formative time. Uh, it's a time of a lot of transition, a lot of question asking. Um, and so our, uh, our mission um, is to reach students for Christ. And so we're evangelistic by nature and to equip them to serve. And so we're on about 175 campuses around the country. Uh, there are a lot of students in this church, which is amazing to see. And I want you to at least know that we exist so that when your children uh, go onto the college campus, uh, there will be a group, hopefully, uh, there for them with an ordained campus minister, with other staff who want to teach them God's word, uh, who want to connect them to Christian community, uh, and uh, to ultimately have them plugged into the church. Um, our goal, our hope, is that when our students go to college, uh, find you know their independence, they figure out who they are, that they would be connected to God's people and to God's church for the entirety of their lives. Uh, and so I, I have the privilege of getting to work with students on Harvard's campus full time uh, to pastor them, to teach them God's word, to connect them to one another. Uh, and so you can be praying for us and our ministry, but others like that, that, that love and care for students. Uh, and so that is, that is where I'm coming from. Um, I'm part of the presbytery that is connected to this church. And so in many ways, I'm a missionary you know, of, of, of the desire of this church for there to be an RUF in New England. Um, and so I, I'm privileged to get to share God's word with you. Um, and so we'll turn to that now. If you will stand, uh, we will read God's word um, and take a look at it. We'll uh, consider it together this morning. Our scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Uh, page 944 in the Pew Bible. I'll give you just a moment to find that spot. This is God's word for us this morning. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. 
Uh, If you will, let me pray for us as we uh, consider God's word. Uh, Lord, we are told in this passage this morning that uh, that you intercede for us, that your spirit uh, goes to the Father on our behalf. Um, We come into the sanctuary this morning with many needs, uh, with many desires, maybe even disappointments. We pray that your word, your spirit would minister to us as we consider the living, active, true word of God. I pray that you would teach us more of who you are this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So I'll start this morning uh, discussing something about language that I know all of you already understand. Um, When you read or use a particular word, there are typically half a dozen, dozen other words that you can used to uh, say nearly the same thing. And so in this passage, in verse 26, when you read help, you might hear assist or relieve or soothe or any other uh, synonym that, that might immediately come to mind. And the challenge in a passage like this, when the main word feels common and open to context and interpretation, is to uh, understand what in particular we are talking about. Um, That's true, obviously, in the English language, but it's true in all languages. And so when this uh, passage, when Paul was penning this letter, uh, he used a particular word for help that is used only two times in the New Testament. And so here in Romans 8, Paul uses this word, but it also shows up in Luke. When Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha, and uh, if you've been in church circles before, you have undoubtedly heard this story. Jesus is teaching and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And Martha is in the kitchen doing all of the manual labor. Uh, If you've been, uh, maybe to the Paul Revere house in downtown Boston or any other old colonial home, you know that there's a lot of work that's involved in taking care of an ancient kitchen. She's keeping the fire going. She's doing all of the work by hand. And Mary is sitting and she isn't helping. And Martha goes to Jesus and and I imagine exasperated said, Lord, don't you care that she has left all the work for me? Tell her to help me. And, And that doesn't tell you everything that you need to know about that word, but I think that it sheds a little bit of light uh, into the, the type of verb that Paul is using here. But he's, he's saying that the, the believer, that, that you are in a situation where you need help in a real sense. That I'm doing real life things and I need real tangible help. It, it's a kind of exasperation when you realize that if someone or something doesn't step in, it's not going to happen. Uh, I've, I've only just met all of you. I'm, I don't want to assume uh, too much about where you are in your life right now. But it is possible that you've come in this morning in a place where you are weak or tired or run down or sad or afraid or alone. And you don't need a pep talk. You don't need an inspirational message. You don't need a distraction or a brain break. You need help. You need real, meaningful, tangible help. And and Paul draws us into the presence of the Lord himself. We're going to look in in more detail at these passages, but I want to look first at verse 26. 
says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And I just want to note at the very beginning that Paul's assumption is human weakness. And that he doesn't point the finger at the Romans and says, the Lord helps you in your weakness. It's actually a first-person plural. The Lord helps us in our weakness. And so if you come in this morning weak, in need of help, the Bible says you're in good company. And that you're in no way alone. And so I want to consider uh, these two verses uh, from the angle of those who need help. And then I want to look at the one who helps. So first, we'll consider those who need help. Uh, If we uh, took a moment to talk about areas where we are weak, where we need help this morning, we could go any number of directions. Uh, Some of us need help physically. You have an illness that plagues you, uh, and you just aren't yourself anymore. Maybe, Maybe it's an illness that you don't expect to be healed this side of heaven. Or you feel emotionally weak. You used to feel stable and in control. And and these past years, you felt uh, spiraling and out of control and unable to help yourself. Or some of you feel relationally weak. That you've had people that were your people and now your relationships are broken. People who have left you behind or people who have passed on. I think all of this is captured and invited in what Paul is talking about. That he talks about a a, a narrow particular type of weakness in the Christian life, but it is encapsulated in all of our human weakness. And the type of weakness that he invites us into that I think encapsulates all of our experience is in verse 26, where he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And this is the way he talks about being weak, is not knowing the right way to pray. If you're a Christian here this morning, I think it is right and good that you would default towards wanting to pray. That is certainly the the intent of this passage. I would say it's uh, maybe, unfortunately, one of the few Christian principles uh, and disciplines. And I say unfortunately because I think there are other Christian disciplines that would be helpful to us. But one of the few Christian disciplines that we know is good for us and actually something that we commit to as God's people. But we, quick, we quickly realize that when we go to the Lord, we don't know what to ask for as we ought. That we have major limitations when it comes to how we pray. And, and certainly there are a number of reasons that this might be the case. I'll, I'll mention two. Uh, First, we don't always know what God is doing. We have all lived through a pretty intense few years. Maybe you'd say you've lived through a pretty intense life. It is right and good for us to want to make sense of it. But I think we need to be careful when we say, well, this is what God was doing through that event. This This is what the Lord intends us to know through this tragedy. God's work in the world extends far beyond our understanding. 
His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And I wonder if you've ever tried to muddle through a prayer where you, you felt like you had to make sense of everything that was happening. To pray for someone who is sick or dying and you don't know what to pray or what to ask or what to do. And so it, this passage leads us to understand that sometimes we don't know how to pray because we don't know what the Lord is doing in a situation that we want to pray about. I think there's a discomfort in our limitations, but it shows us our weakness. Second, we don't know what is happening in the world around us. Oftentimes, the situations we pray about and the circumstances uh, that we are concerned about involve people and events that we don't know everything about. This last week, it's possible that you were praying about a coworker who makes your workday unbearable or a friend who can't seem to get out of their own way. And we want to pray for these things, and we should, but we often don't know the full story or we don't have a clear picture of what's going on. And we don't always know how to pray. Let's think about the context of the Roman church who is reading this letter. Most scholars would put this letter at 57 AD, which means they're reading it under the persecution of Nero. We know that, that Nero was a monster, especially to Christians, that these Christians, prior to reading this letter and while reading this letter, were watching their children, their fathers, their friends be burned at the stake, tortured in the Colosseum. How do you pray for that? Do you pray, Lord, take away the persecution so I don't have to see my family suffer? Or do you pray, Lord, use this persecution that the gospel may spread and your kingdom may grow throughout all of the earth? How do you pray? Lord, stop it. Lord, don't stop it. Let's think about this room and the things that you need prayer for. It's likely that you or someone you love is very sick or hurting or suffering from addiction. How do you pray? Lord, take away the things that are hurting them, relieve their suffering. Or do you pray, Lord, use this sickness for their good, for the good of those around them? I think if we're honest, it's not, it's not always clear. It's not always cut and dry. You've likely felt this tension I don't know that we talk about it enough, but the Bible sort of invites us into this conversation here. Or what if you're thinking about your career and your desire uh, to, to do something that would make a profit? Should you pray that your career goes well, that you make lots of money, that you could, that you could be generous and give to those in need? But you say to yourself, well, the Bible says that the heart is wicked and deceitful. Maybe I'm deceiving myself right now. What if I really just want a better lifestyle and better vacations and I'm just spiritualizing it? We don't know always how to pray in our weakness. We have human limitations that we cannot overcome by working harder or by better spiritual preparation. We need the presence of the Lord himself. We are not autonomous individuals. 
And what I want you to feel this morning is a thankfulness for your limitation because it means the love of the Spirit meets you in that place. That God enters in and helps the weak. God helps those who don't know what to say or how to pray. And so I want to shift to looking at the one who helps. The one who meets us in our need. Romans 8 makes several references to the Spirit. The Spirit, of course, is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the one given to believers as a helper. The Spirit is the one who knows us, the one who occupies us and knows our inner self. Back in verse 9 of chapter 8, Paul says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit who dwells in you knows your inner frame. And I want you to see why that is important and is relevant to our consideration this morning. I'm sure you, like me, have tried to get something out or share something with a dear friend. Someone who really knows you and really loves you. Maybe it was, uh, it was a real success that you have suffered through uh, testing and extracurriculars and advanced classes to get to the university that you wanted to get to, to the grad school uh, that, where you wanted to attend, and you got the job that you've always wanted. And, and you want someone to enter into that joy, into that success. Or, or you've tried to share with a friend a real sadness that you threw yourself into a relationship, that you gave your whole heart to it, and you were crushed and disappointed. If you've ever done that, you've come to the reality that no one totally gets it. I wonder if you've ever felt this. That you have something deeply personal that you need someone to understand and someone to be in it with you. And even someone who loves you who is trying to listen and understand, can't totally get you. They're dependent on your ability to articulate, your ability to understand every angle of the situation, to understand fully your experience. The Bible says the Holy Spirit knows you more deeply than you know yourself. The Spirit of God who dwells in you knows you in your weakness. He has a better handle on you and your motivation and your thoughts and your values and even your faith than you do. And so the Holy Spirit knows you, but, or and, the Holy Spirit knows the will of God. Verse 27, he who searches hearts knows what, the, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to to the will of God. The Holy Spirit, of course, is fully God. He knows you and he knows the will of God because he is God himself. And what does he do with all of that? Because he knows us and he knows the will of the Father. He knows how to pray. You and I, in our weakness, don't know what to say. But we have the Spirit of God himself who lives in us who, who knows us and intercedes for us on behalf of the Father. 
The Bible calls this intercession. That he goes between the two parties. That he takes our needs to the Father. But I also think it's interesting how he does it. The passage says the way that he intercedes, how he goes to the Father, and how he communicates what we need, is he groans. If you've read Romans chapter 8 before, that word should ring a bell. Earlier, Paul says the whole creation groans because of its brokenness. That it that the creation groans, but also you and I groan because when we take a, a good, hard look at our life and the brokenness around us, we feel the weight of our sin and our inability, and we groan. When someone or something groans, it means that they're emotionally invested. It's not a sigh. You groan when you hear bad news about someone you really care You groan when you lose out on something you actually cared to have. You groan when you give everything to someone and the relationship fails. And here, our text is saying it's not the creation that groans. It's not you and I, the people that groan, but the Spirit groans to the Father for you. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What we translate here, too deep for words, uh, really could just mean wordless or speechless. That the Spirit himself is so invested in the life of the believer that he groans to the Father, speechless. For the things that you need. And so we can pray. And even if you don't know what you're asking for or asking in the right way, the Spirit groans to the Father for you. I've been praying for this person or this sin or this circumstance or this way of brokenness that I've felt for years. And I'm tired and worn down and don't even know how to pray anymore. And the Spirit groans to the Father for that need. Finally, I want, I want to help us understand why it's so valuable that God himself would groan for us without words. What that actually reveals to us about the character of God and our relationship to him. Um, and I want to do it by, by sharing a story that is fairly personal, and I, and I know essentially no people in this room, and so if you'll bear with me, if you'll indulge a personal story, I think that we'll, we'll eventually get there together. Um, I mentioned uh, my wife and I have two girls, uh, and b- before we had our two daughters, uh, we had a son uh, who's no longer with us named Arthur. And... When my wife was about 21 weeks pregnant, she was, uh, we were living in Charlotte, she was visiting a roommate in New York City, and I got a call in the middle of the night that she's pretty sure that her water has broken and that she's going to the hospital in Brooklyn. And I'm 24, I don't know anything about anything. Uh, and so the first thing I do is I call an older friend who lives a few blocks away 
who's a consultant who works in New York City. I feel like he's sort of my, my best bet to come up with a plan. I know I need to do something. And about two hours later, he's at my door with a plane ticket and a cup of coffee and says, get in the car, we're going to the airport. And, uh, and my friend John knew exactly what to do to help me in that moment. But his wife, Sarah, uh, happens to be a neonatal nurse. And so he didn't just know sort of the mechanics of how to help me, but he knew what I was walking into. And I didn't know what I was walking into. And about five or six minutes into a 15-minute drive to the airport, uh, I'm just sort of like, my head is spinning. I don't know what to do. And, and, I, and I look over at him because I hear him gasp. And, and when, I, when I look, he is red in the face, and he is crying these deep tears with no words and deep groaning. And his response to suffering in that moment was deeply humbling. It's humbling to have someone enter into your pain with you. It was also endearing. I didn't have to wonder in that moment if he cared for me. And I wonder if we can apply that same reality to the Trinity. That God doesn't have to like us. That God doesn't have to enter into our weakness. He didn't have to notice or care for our pain. But he does because love isn't something that he does occasionally. He is love. And it's humbling. If we hear it, he groans about your disappointments, your loss, your loneliness. Are there not bigger concerns in the universe than your loneliness? Yes, but he groans. It's humbling, but it's also endearing. We don't just love him and worship him because he is big and powerful and good. We do. We prayed a prayer of adoration this morning, and rightfully so. But he loves us in our weakness, so we don't have to wonder if he loves us. This is a God who doesn't resent our weakness, but holds us there. He loves us so much that he would become a weak person himself to substitute for your weakness in every way so that you could be in fellowship with him, so that in the new heavens and the new earth, you will dwell with him, so that when you go on to glory, you can be with him, that in our weakness, in throwing our weakness onto Jesus, we get all that is his. Let this be an invitation to faith and to walk with Jesus this morning. Let me pray.